Hello all and a warm welcome to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the number one North Wales based one man and his cat true crime show that seeks out those tales that are unfamiliar and are often long forgotten, obscure, perhaps even sometimes unbelievable ones from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, accompanied by my cat who is doing very little today. But you may hear his little bell from time to time during the episode. Peaks is here too. And you kind lot complete it all. The enthusiasts who make the show so. It is as always fabulous having you joining me today for the episode. Which I thank you for doing so. And I do hope that as it finds you. Then you and yours are all good. You're all safe. And you're all well. So I'm back with another pair of tales this week. And probably next time as well. The shape of the series has changed somewhat. As I keep putting our arc off. Because I'll find a tale or some tales. That seem to choose themselves for inclusion over doing it. I've said this many times but they do. And those featured in our previous episode. Mutilated and Mangled. Were two that did exactly just that. If you haven't yet heard that one. Then head back and do so. Because those two accounts feature some of the most horrific crimes. Ever featured on The Enthusiast. Particularly the first one. It will proper anger you and chill your blood. And I thank everyone for the feedback I've received about both. I also thank both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. With shout outs going out here this time to Courtney, Brian, Katie Wilson, Kevin Honey and Emma Callier who has opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. Thank you so much you lovely lot. Now stuff has gone out to some of you and hopefully will be with you soonest and and I know this month's bonus episode was ever so slightly delayed. I know that and I apologise. But I do hope that you've managed to make a start on at least some of the 26 unreleased bonus tales that being a supporter brings for your ears. The latest one, The Final Straw, trust me, it's one of the most disturbing yet memorable tales you'll ever hear and I was proud to bring it. It's one of the most powerful tales I've ever covered. Now if you want to join these guys and hear that one for yourselves or others such as Angel from Hell or Death of a Brighton Schoolboy Operation Magnesium or Pierpoint's Last Drop to name just a couple of the unreleased episodes then to do so is easier than working out just why you shouldn't have booked a holiday abroad right now it's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site or there's a link that does all of that for you in the episode show notes alongside the show's contact and social media details so before we get to this time around's tales which I shall do this time, next time, and then I'm probably going to have a week's break. We start with a word from the show sponsors, who are once again, Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends, which I'm moving through level after level of. Right now I'm hundreds of levels up on it because I love it, and I know that once you have a go and play too, you'll be doing the same because it's fab, the fun just doesn't stop with it. The colourful world called Minutia, which the makers of Best Fiends have created, contains thousands of different levels across areas ranging from the green glades right through to the celestial springs, and with the use of fun colourful characters such as Wilbur and Buggles, who you collect on your journey and who each have their own unique little skill, you'll be off on your quest blowing up shells and crates, firing rockets, collecting diamonds, toadstools, gold bars, there's all sorts that you come across as you progress through. What you'll find with Best Fiends, and this is exactly why it appeals to me so much, is that it's a casual enough game that you can play and enjoy it stress-free, 
but for the puzzle-minded out there, it's equally a strategy game that makes you ponder several moves ahead, and each time I'm playing Best Fiends, I'm always impressed with how fresh it feels. It might be new events, new challenges, or always the multitude of new levels there is for you to put your mind to. It's also a great way to stay in touch with friends you might not be able to be with right now, and thanks to the times that we face, as you can stay connected with them by playing alongside them and sharing your progress on the leaderboard. Or why don't you just kick back and enjoy playing Best Fiends by yourself, because you don't even need to be connected online to do so. If you're totally over the same old puzzle games and you fancy something new, then you need look no further and you'll discover that this awesome mobile puzzle game really is the one for you, because it's so much more than your average. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I'm covering a pair of cases that have long been kicking around on the chalkboard. I'm trying to do a bit of a spring clean with it to get some of these names off there, because there's always plenty more going up on it, and it's full at the moment, and it's this pair's turn this time around. Now it's a sad truth that mass shootings are almost commonplace seemingly daily occurrences in other countries, but they're not really here in the UK. It was only very recently that it passed the 11th anniversary of the last one, the Cumbria Massacre, where crazed rampaging taxi driver Derek Bird, in an orgy of violence one morning, shot dead 12 people and wounded another 11 before ultimately taking his own life. It ranks as one of the most infamous massacres in British criminal history and joins the other two that are so widely known and remembered that just one word suffices for you to conjure up the horror and know exactly what I'm talking about, Hungerford and Dunblane, that people will automatically think of if you say to them, mass shooting. They don't really need any introduction then, do they? However, it isn't by any means just these three, for there are others that are lesser known or remembered. For example, way back in the first series of the show, I covered the 1987 rampage of crazed gunman Kevin Weaver in Bristol, in the episode One Man's Fatal Obsession, and, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert that not even my publisher knows yet, I have researched another one fully that will form a chapter of my upcoming book, but I'll cover the accounts of another two of them here for the show. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so as always folks, please use your discretion whilst listening in. With that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled The Airman and the Commander. For our first tale of the episode, we head back to the summer of 1955 and down to the southeast coast of the UK to the county of Kent to what was at the time predominantly a US Air Force base, RAF Manston, in Thanet. As 21-year-old US second-class airman Napoleon Green, a Chicago native stationed at RAF Manston, stood up on his bed on the evening of Tuesday the 25th of August 1955, he announced to the other airmen in the communal barracks where they slept, You sons of bitches had better listen good to me, for tomorrow I die. But before I do, I'll come to the mess hall and we'll wipe the lot of you out. Just you watch and wait. I'm taking a few guys out especially that son of a bitch bastard Alder, 
he then stormed out. Now the other soldiers, who were at the time doing things like kit prep or writing letters home, couldn't say very much to this. I mean, what do you say to that? But perhaps they had some empathy for him, for Green was facing trouble, and the following day, at 1pm, would appear before a disciplinary panel to be investigated over the alleged theft of a wallet containing some $120, and also in connection with an indecent assault on a young woman in the nearby seaside town of Margate. If the case were found against him, he would almost certainly face court-martial, possibly leading to a stretching military prison, and perhaps even ignominiously being discharged from the services. For several days up to that point, Green had been raging against Captain Mercer Alder, the US Provost Marshal on the base, for it would be his responsibility to conduct the investigation, and Green just plain didn't like him. The prospect of the impending investigation was clearly troubling the airmen, but was this wiping people out threat just an idle boast and a load of talk? Or was he serious? That evening, most of the other airmen in the barracks told themselves that it was most likely the former, it being the kind of thing someone knowing of impending inevitable disciplinary action would say, and this sleep was uninterrupted. The following morning, Eamon Green awoke and got up at Reveille, put on his working dress and headed off to the mess hall for breakfast, before getting on with his appointed task of the day, which that day placed him as part of a team who were groundskeeping. I'm sure if any ex or current serving personnel who are listening in, then you know as well as I do how these types of places have to be kept free at all times of bloody silly things like leaves and everything smells of fresh paint, doesn't it? How many times have you had shit jobs like that thrust upon you? Green's job for the day was edging off turf. I don't know whether they were assigning jobs by suitable surname there, but I digress. So after breakfast, he'd cracked on early that morning with another airman, airman Leo Thorne, who was affectionately known as Shorty, and had only been doing the job for a few minutes when he dropped his turf cutter and began walking across to a large admin block just behind the guard room which was in a part of the Manston base relatively close to the main gate, and which housed, amongst other things, the military police headquarters, the detention centre, and the armoury, which was known informally as the gun room. On duty that morning in the armoury was Airman 3rd Class James Robert Hall, who was later to describe the next few moments alone with Napoleon Green. I was working in the gun room by myself when he came in by himself and I told him to stand behind the counter where the men stand to draw equipment. He did so. He went over to the stencil machine and started banging it. I said to him, hey will you stop that, you're going to break it. He hit the machine four times after this. I then turned back to what I was doing. I was busy making inventory of sheets and blankets when I heard the click of a gun, a forty-five pistol. That was the first time I'd seen him with it. I looked around and he had the gun in his hand. He picked up a holster and walked towards the counter, picking up a hatchet on the way. I followed him towards the counter and he went over to the gun cage door and began hitting the lock with a hatchet. I saw a note on the counter which said, Today I die and was signed by Napoleon Green. I knew then that there was something funny. Now I don't know what kind of stores they ran down at RAF Manston back in the 50s and whether it was like the bloody hardware shop in the famous Four Candles sketch. I mean, 
blankets, hatchets and guns all just lying about together will-nilly. I don't know either why it took Hall reading that note for him to realise that something funny was up, unless you get held up at gunpoint commonly and you routinely get soldiers trying to smash their way into the gun cage with axes, but I digress. Hall continued. I said to him, Okay, stop, I'll get the key. All this time he was pointing his forty-five pistol at me. When I told him I would get the key, he told me, No, you just better stay right there. And then a different expression came on his face when he was banging. He started hitting the lock of the gun cage again, repeatedly, until it broke, and then opened it and took ammunition for a pistol and for an automatic rifle, scooping up a handful of weapons and keeping the pistol pointed at me. I started trying to talk to him, but he then picked up the automatic rifle and walked out of the front door, with a weapon held in each hand. He had the holster belt on. As he went out, he said, Now you can tell the men. As soon as he'd gone, I phoned my sergeant, and he phoned the RAF police. Best in the world. Five minutes later, I heard the shooting start. As Green had exited the armoury, he headed towards billet number 848, the hut that he shared with other airmen. It was by this time 9.15am, and placing the forty-five into his trouser pocket, levelled the automatic rifle and kicked open the door. Be out of here by ten o'clock, or else, he shouted through the open door to the occupants, stood there in the doorway like some sort of angel of death. Eamon's second-class Quanah Parker was the first to react to this, looking up and at first believing this to be some form of joke, before stepping forward, intending on making a gallant attempt to stop Green in his tracks when he realised that his fellow Eamon was deadly serious. He was stopped in his tracks with a bullet, which knocked him to the ground, but only thankfully caused him a minor injury, grazing his arm. With Parker on the floor, and as a result now having the attention of the entire billet, Green jumped onto a bed, shouted out and asked the airman, If anybody moves, they'll get plugged. Where's this Captain Alder then? As someone shouted to the gunman that they believed Alder had headed over to the camp laundry, hoping he would leave so they could raise the alarm. Another airman, airman second class Nelson Gresham, who knew Napoleon Green, stepped forward and pleaded with Green to put the gun down before someone was more seriously injured. Green's response was to level the weapon at Gresham, squeeze the trigger and send a round through him, leaving his fellow airmen to fall, mortally wounded. The now crazed gunman then sprayed the billet with a volley of automatic fire, which thankfully injured no one, before running off out of sight but still with pockets full of ammunition. Once he was outside the billet, the carnage he just unleashed before now behind him, Green seemingly abandoned any sort of plan he may have had, whatever that would have been like, and now began firing at random. Marching next into the camp pay office on Haley Road, he then without any warning or provocation fired a volley of shots inside, shooting dead 33-year-old paymaster Sergeant Lawrence Felasquez and hitting civilian stenographer Wendy Welton in the thigh before making his way outside. As he exited the building, ex-station RAF warrant officer Aubrey Easto, who had spent his final 11 years of service stationed at the camp, 
and was now the civilian camp tailor, was driving past in his Morris Minor alongside his assistant when he saw several US service personnel rushing out of billet 848 in an obvious panic, some of them even still in their underwear. As he was trying to take this spectacle in, there was a sudden explosion that seemed to have come from underneath Easto's car bonnet, which was so loud that his first instinct was that the engine had exploded. It was merely his front offside tyre exploding after it had been raked with a volley of fire from Green's automatic weapon. As Easto and his assistant both jumped out of the car, he shut the door behind him and a bullet whizzed by his ear, shattering the driver's window, and as he turned, he saw Green pointing the automatic weapon at him. Rushing quickly around the car, he pulled his assistant to safety, and as both crouched down behind the vehicle, Green rained nine bullets at it. Only two of the shots were to connect with the vehicle and struck the driver's door, one passing through it and grazing the back of Aubrey's leg. The other, which was at chest height, had exited through glass right towards Aubrey, and came to rest in the thin metal strut that he was pressed up against, that raised the window glass, directly in line with him. You'd never be luckier in your life, would you? Bloody hellfire. Aubrey Easter was certainly the luckiest person in Manston that day. Green now continued running up Haley Road, firing the carbine rifle indiscriminately at anyone or anything that took his fancy. As Ermini shot at each dived for cover, he saw attractive red-haired 19-year-old admin assistant Margaret Hall, a civilian worker at Manston, and one who was to emerge from the drama as a young woman who was filled with what could only be described as commendable courage. Hey, I want you, Green called to her as he gripped her arm. Margaret was to say later, I took no notice of him, but he ran after me, caught my arm, and asked me where I was going. I told him I was going back to work, and then he asked me if I could drive a car, and I told him that I couldn't. Green loosened the grip he had on Margaret and began firing indiscriminately at a nearby building, so whilst he did this, the brave young woman walked calmly away. She continued, He caught up with me once again and said to me, You're not going to work, you're coming with me. I asked him just who he thought he was to tell me that, and where I should go. I walked off again, and he followed me. Now it was at this point in the high drama of that morning that an RAF police corporal, 22-year-old Peter Greyer, came cycling around the corner on a bicycle, right into the path of the crazed green. Margaret continued, There were shots. I turned, and I saw the corporal fall off his bicycle. I asked Green what we should do, and he said, leave him. Taking no messing from him, showing no fear to the armed gunman, Margaret simply ignored him and ran to the aid of the fallen airman, whose bicycle had fallen on top of him. She said, I turned my back on Green and walked towards the corporal and called for help. No one came forward at first when I called them, but they did after Green had backed away. Another witness to the brutal murder, William Emptharge, a clerk at the airbase who lived in nearby Margate, later said of Corporal Greyer, He was on his bicycle and swerved to the right, apparently to avoid Green. Then I saw Green deliberately raise the rifle, pointed at him, 
and shoot him at least three times in the back. The corporal was dead by the time I reached him. It was absolutely deliberate. Corporal Greyer had been struck just over the left hip bone, in the left side of his back just underneath his shoulder blade, and on the right side of his neck. Although he wasn't killed outright, he was only to live for a few minutes following the shooting, dying from shock and multiple hemorrhages. Now this death struck home with me especially as I was researching the tale, because as I said, Corporal Greyer was an RAF policeman, and that was a role I held myself for several years. And if you have a forces background, you just especially are struck when you learn of the loss of one of your own, if you like, in whatever circumstances. So all I could say is Corporal Greyer, Fiat Justitia. As Green now backed away from the body of Corporal Greyer, his latest victim and the fifth person that he'd shot, he saw coming up the road towards him Leo Thorne, old Shorty himself and told him, Get out of the way, Shorty. I don't want to hurt you as well. Shorty probably didn't need telling twice. Fourteen-year-old Sean Appleton, meanwhile, had taken a day off school to help his father, who was a contractor on the base, in his day-to-day labouring. The pair were back in their lorry into an alley beside the camp barbers when they heard firing begin instinctively knowing that this wasn't the noise from a mere exercise or a scheduled range day. They stopped and scrambled out of the vehicle and got themselves to the safest place that they could, which was lying underneath the lorry. However, the vehicle was only half in and was blocking the road, so rather than wait there and make themselves obvious targets, because it would draw the gunman's attention, as they saw him approach from where they were lay underneath, they decided to make a run for safety. As Green saw them sprinting away from the lorry towards the laundry, he gave chase, and although his father made it inside, Sean overshot the door and had to turn back, a move that brought him face to face with Napoleon Green. Green looked at him, raised the rifle, and then, perhaps seeing he was a youth, inexplicably let him go, so Sean ran into the laundry. Now upon reflection later, perhaps the laundry wasn't the best place to try and hide from the crazed gunman, because it was the laundry where Green had been headed, because he'd only been told moments before that it was there that his enemy number one, Captain Alder, had gone to. However, as luck would have it, Captain Alder wasn't at the laundry just then, he'd been delayed elsewhere, and so not finding his target in there, Green left. Meanwhile, RAF Police Corporal Terence Connolly was on duty in the station guardroom that morning. He'd actually taken over duties from the ill-fated Corporal Greyer, and was talking to the occupants of a vehicle he'd stopped at a checkpoint when he heard the gunfire from just around the corner and went over to investigate where it had come from. Arriving at the corner, he saw the disappearing figure of Napoleon Green heading away in the distance towards the main gate. Now here, a van containing five people, all staff of the Manson American Express branch and being driven by the branch manager Leonard Broadbent, was just driving through when it stopped suddenly because there was a figure stood in the middle of the road pointing a rifle at them. Which you would stop for, wouldn't you? Get out of that van! The crazed figure screamed at them. But before Leonard or any of the other occupants could comply, Green decided he wasn't going to wait, 
and opened fire on the vehicle, hitting occupant Ian Yeomans in the buttocks and wounding Anne Cockburn in the leg. Then, as the occupants ran for cover, dragging the injured with them, thinking, go big or go home, Green emptied nearly a full magazine into the side of the van, spraying bullets that struck it from the bonnet to the boot. Now realising that his shooting up of the van had rendered it useless to use, Green shot twice at a parked car, then at two figures in the distance, hitting Ehrman's second-class Lester Hunt in the chest and grazing Technical Sergeant John Gourveyor's arm before running off towards another vehicle parked nearby, a Ford Poplar model whose owner, US Master Sergeant Rowley McDaniels, was sat in the driving seat. McDaniels was to later recall, Green fired twice at another car parked near mine and then advanced towards my car, pointed his 45 at me and said, I'm not afraid of you, you hear me man? You drive like hell. You drive, mister, drive, he told me. I did. All the while training the weapon on McDaniels, Green got into the back seat of the Ford Poplar and with the gun stuck in the back of his neck, told McDaniels to drive the vehicle away heading out of the camp gate and turning off left towards Margate. Meanwhile, Corporal Connolly, witnessing this from a safe distance, sensible RAF police tactics there, noted the vehicle registration number, PLT 463, and managed to pass on the information to the civilian police, this being the first that they'd been notified that there'd been a mass shooting on the airbase, with an unknown number injured, and at least two confirmed casualties. Sergeant Velasquez, dead in the pay office, had not yet been discovered at this point. Only moments after leaving the base, meanwhile, the Ford Poplar had reached the outskirts of Margate, where at Shottendane Lane, Green saw a signpost for London. Ordering McDaniels to drive to London, he was told that the vehicle didn't have enough fuel to make a trip that far. So somewhat even more agitated, and he's having a bit of a morning already, isn't he? Green ordered him to keep driving until they reached a crossroads where Green told him to turn into Nash Road. McDaniels recalled later, All the time I could feel the barrel of the gun in my back. By that time I'd started to talk to him. I was still scared, but I felt that I could talk to him. I said that I had a wife and two children, and suggested that he drove the car himself. He wasn't sure about driving a British car, but I assured him it was no different from an American one. I asked him if he wanted me to stop, and he said, yeah, pull over. I stopped the car, and still covered by the rifle, got out. I moved across, and showed him how to drive it, and he got out. Before I walked away and he drove off, he gave me a message, he said, Tell Captain Alder that when they get me, I'll be dead. As the car started, I walked back to the crossroads. I stopped another driver and went to Margate Police Station and reported. When he had taken the Ford Poplar, Green had driven off down Nash Road, where only a short distance down, for reasons known only to himself, he had stopped and abandoned it, continuing on foot down the road, rifle in one hand, pistol in the other. Police Constable Burt Bridgeland, it's full of great names this account, isn't it? Meanwhile, who lived on Nash Road, was just about to leave his home to report for duty that morning when his bootlace broke. 
As he was bending down to sort this out, his wife looked through the window and told him that an airman was walking down the road outside, armed to the teeth. Don't be so bloody daft, he had told her. Now, if he hadn't been dealing with the snap bootlace, he would have at that very moment been wheeling his motorcycle outside to report for duty, coming face to face with Green himself, and quite possibly, arguably most likely, would have been shot by the gunman, quite possibly becoming his fourth fatality. For the rest of his days, PC Bridgeland was to muse that that broken bootlace had saved his life that day. Green had decided that Nash Road ultimately held nothing for him meanwhile, so walked back up and got back into the Ford Poplar, struggling to drive it. Sure enough, PC Bridgeland saw it being driven erratically back past the house, a quote, like it was being driven on kangaroo juice. Now that's like me, that is. I've only very recently had an automatic car for the first time in my life. I'm still getting used to the fact that it's largely one foot that you use. There's been a couple of bump-your-head moments, but, but I am getting there with it. Only moments after the Ford Poplar had passed his house, PC Bridgeland answered a flashing red light at the police pillarbox at the top of Nash Road, which was a message from police headquarters informing him of what had happened at Manston Air Base just a short time before, as by that time, Sergeant McDaniels had managed to report what had happened to police. Issuing a description of Green, complete with a description of the vehicle and its registration number, PC Bridgeland realised that this was the wanted man he had seen drive past his house, and with a side mental note that he owed his wife a massive bunch of flowers and a date night for saying that she was daft, even though he was unarmed, got onto his motorcycle and set off in pursuit of Green, having requested headquarters send assistance. By this time well ahead of the officer, Green, not knowing the area any further than the airbase and its immediate surroundings, had managed to make his way to the coastal town of Broadstairs, on the Isle of Thanet Peninsula, pop trivia quiz, and is where Charles Dickens wrote one of his most famous works, David Copperfield, while he was staying in the town's bleak house, which is also rumoured to have been the inspiration and indeed the house referred to in his 1853 novel of the same name. It was by now 10.45am, some 90 minutes after he'd first thrown down his lawn edging tool and walked towards the armoury, when Green once again abandoned the vehicle, this time just outside the Tartar Frigate pub on the town's Harbour Street, which was at the time and still is today a dead-end street ending in a seafront car park. Seeing the abandoned vehicle, 70-year-old attendant Frederick Beecham watched in amazement, which rapidly turned to alarm as he saw the heavily armed figure get out and make his way off. The game old dude, with his own sense of duty, shouted after Green, Hey, you can't park there! To which Green, who was now making his way down to the beach, turned and shouted back to him, If they want me, they're gonna have to come and get me, man. And by this time, with all sorts of police running around after the crazed triple killer and multi-shooter who was running amok armed with a carbine weapon in the Kent countryside, that was exactly what they intended to do. In a combined British and American operation, a large number of military police, 
as well as a 16 strong armed response unit from Thanet arrived at the scene, quickly cordoning off the area and fanning themselves out at vantage points from the cliffside to the seashore, where they could survey the area clearly and with a clear line of sight and fire. Green, meanwhile, was by this time stood down on the, on the beach of Viking Bay. Looking around him, he could see several holidaymakers still on the sands in the distance, oblivious to what was happening, until one of them noticed the airman with the gun. Not the kind of thing you usually see on the beach, is it? By this time, people were also now noticing the police who had taken up their positions around, realised that something was happening, yet more rubbernecking and up for a gawk than afraid and trying to flee, and began shouting directions to the officers. They were told firmly in response to keep clear for their troubles, and police now fired on Napoleon Green, who in response fired bursts from the rifle wildly into the air, but none of the shots hit him, and he first took cover behind some rocks before he began advancing backwards, beginning to wade into the sea. So by now, having armed officers advancing towards him from both the north and the south, cutting off the only possible escape routes for him, Green could now see that there was no way out left for him. If he surrendered now, he thought, he would be tried not only for theft and indecent assault of a girl, but now a triple murder and mass shooting also, having run absolutely amok that morning. There were too many witnesses, too much proof for him to even hope to get off, and even in his crazed state, he knew that the inevitable guilty verdict meant just one thing a visit with Mr. Pierpoint. His fate decided then, Green walked out into the sea up to a depth of 18 inches and calmly turned the rifle on himself, firing some two shots. Armed police fired back in response, but a witness who saw Green shoot himself, one of the holidaymakers at a much closer vantage point, said later, he seemed to place his rifle upon his chest before he collapsed forward. PC Bridgeland was the first officer down to reach the body, spotting the rifle sticking up out of the sea. As holidaymakers made their way over as near as they could to regale the spectacle, and there is a photograph taken from the scene on the show's Instagram page, where you can clearly see some of the holidaymakers posing almost excitedly, totally regardless of the somberness of the scene. Police and armed soldiers fetched a stretcher, where the body of Napoleon Green was then carried up off the beach and loaded into a waiting ambulance. The following day, the drama was widely and somewhat sensationally reported as a gun battle on the beach, but that's somewhat misleading. A surely better way of describing it would be an hour and a half of mayhem, during which three people were tragically and senselessly killed, and nine others were injured before the deranged gunman who prophesied his own death on the eve of the carnage had taken his own life. The inquest into Corporal Grayler's death, there were to be no inquests on the US service personnel who were killed, although an investigation was reportedly at the same time being conducted by the US Air Force, with its results furnished to the appropriate British authority, was held just two days later on Friday the 27th of August 1955 in Ramsgate, in which a jury returned a verdict of unlawful killing against Napoleon Green. At the end of the inquest, 
the East Kent coroner, Mr. W. R. Mowell, praised the bravery of the US service and British civil police. This man was doubly armed, and there was no doubt he was using his arms, he said. No doubt indeed. Cause of death as suicide was also laid at the feet of Green, following his post-mortem examination that took place the day after the inquest, carried out by Surgeon Colonel R.B. Lewis at Denham U.S. Air Force Base. Though there was an arm wound to the body that had been caused by a bullet, it had not bled, which indicated that it had been inflicted after death. Scorch marks and powder burns were also later found on Green's clothing, that corresponded with two bullet wounds to his heart, and which indicated that the two shots had been fired at close range. A Protestant service was held for him at the chapel at Manston, following a Catholic service carried out for the two US servicemen he had killed, and then, under orders of Station Adjutant Lieutenant Colonel Adrian Nock, Green's body was repatriated back to the United States some days later, alongside that of Sergeant Velasquez and Airman 2nd Class Gresham. Though a reason was searched for, no exact reason could be given for Green's rampage that morning. It was all mere speculation. Though he had a minor criminal past before joining the US Air Force in 1952, he'd served 30 days' imprisonment for petty larceny. He had no history of mental instability, and indeed, both his mother Teresa and his sister Lily told of a letter that they'd received from Green just a month previously saying how much he liked his assignment in England. But it was clear that he was somewhat of a troubled soul because untroubled people don't get themselves lined up for court-martial over theft and indecent assault, do they? It was thought that during his time working in the supply stores some months before, he'd secreted the forty-five pistol away never knowing when he may want or need to use it. And use it he did, only a couple of months later. It seems that Green had snapped, I believe, at least some days before the massacre, and knowing he was going to die, had begun writing his series of notes stating this. A fellow unnamed Ehrman said later, On Saturday night, after he'd been questioned about the theft of $120, he told me, I don't want to go to jail. I'll get Rayner and Alder for this. I think Gresham was shot by accident. He was the finest guy in the camp. This accident seemed to send Green off his head. Was Captain Alder and another provost officer, Rayner, Green's original sole target? And is it quite possible that by shooting Gresham, which doesn't seem to have been an accident at all really, his already perilously weak grasp on any kind of rational thought completely broke and he just thought, kill them all. We will never know. Due to the passage of time since the events, most, if not all of those mentioned here will today be passed away themselves. And though the Manston Massacre is largely forgotten, it's unreal that it's so unfamiliar, isn't it? It doesn't even invoke a mention on the bloody Wikipedia page for Manston. It has become part of local history in Broadstairs, where it is still remembered there even today, more than 65 years since and long after Manston ceased to operate as an airbase. Crazy stuff that, eh? And there is another account to come following a short word from the show sponsor, BetterHelp. 
for whatever it is that may be interfering with your happiness or if there's something keeping you from achieving your goals, then BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp does is assesses whatever issues you may be facing and then matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling. Just to clarify, it isn't self-help that's being advocated here. The service is a much more affordable one than traditional offline counselling, with financial aid even available for the service if it's needed, is one that's available for clients worldwide and has a broad range of expertise that's available, some of which you may not be able to get locally, and with specialists who are accredited, licensed, trained and experienced in a vast range of issues, from self-esteem troubles to sleeping problems. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating with a counsellor online in complete confidence and privacy, and all without that uncomfortable waiting room feeling. And once you've started, you'll get thoughtful and timely responses from your counsellor. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them. You can even message them anytime you wish. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash TCE. For our second account of the episode, we skip forward more than 20 years and 350 miles away from where Napoleon Green's bloodbath came to a stop that day, to the small North Wales seaside town of Penmine Mower in Carnarvonshire. It's long since been razed to the ground today, but back in 1976, where our tale takes place, there for many years stood a large converted Victorian manor house set back off the Bangor Road that leads onto the A55 that was named the Red Gables. Built by the Reverend Henry Furno in 1885, the spacious, elegant green and white building had for 85 years been known as Gwil Aneth and had in the 1930s been converted into a 12-room guesthouse that soon proved popular with visitors. With its panoramic views of the hills behind Penmine Mower, and its secluded, attractive gardens with easy access to the beach below proving a big hit. One Leicester woman reportedly had even holidayed there annually for 47 years. The premises changed ownership several times over the years, but by 1971, it came under the ownership of Lancashire native Linda Simcox, who wanted a fresh start following the death of her second husband, Leonard. Linda, who'd run a guesthouse in Blackpool for many years beforehand, fell in love with and bought the property, renaming Gwilaneth the Red Gables. And indeed, as the 1970s progressed, as did business boom for the Red Gables. It was a real family affair as Linda owned it, and her children Richard and Muriel both had stakes in it, as well as being involved in the day-to-day running. Although she wasn't well known in the town, Those who did know Linda found her to be a pleasant, approachable woman and a fair boss who treated his staff well and was in turn liked and respected by each of them. Apart from one member of staff who saw himself as a bit more than he actually was to Linda. 
54-year-old live-in gardener handyman Neil Rutherford had been employed at the Red Gable since April 1975, at first living alone in a flat beneath the property, before moving into one of the upstairs rooms in the main building. Ridgely hailing from the Wirral, and described as being a quiet and solitary, almost nervous and fidgety man, the short and stocky Rutherford was known in the pubs he used locally as the Commander due to his former career in the Royal Navy, which had been a distinguished one. His service record is publicly available and details how the shipbuilder's son progressed rapidly in the Navy after entering Naval College in 1936, three years before the outbreak of World War II. As an active serviceman, he moved swiftly from midshipman through to officer ranks, serving on a variety of vessels before taking a submarine training course and in July 1943 being given his own command, that of the HMS Spiteful submarine, whose role was patrolling the Pacific Ocean sinking Japanese vessels. After the war, he'd met a woman named Joan Marjorie Colville Hyde, who he had married in August 1948, and who he went on to have a daughter with. Rutherford then had a series of further commands both on and offshore, including seeing active service in the Korean War, before the final service of his naval career, which he served for a time at the Underwater Weapons Development Department in Bath. Perfect place with anything to do with underwater, really, that, isn't it? He retired from the Royal Navy on the 5th of January 1958, having served his full 22 years agreed service in an enjoyable, exemplary career that had seen him reach the rank of commander and twice seen him decorated with the Distinguished Service Cross in 1945 and again in 1951 for, I quote, gallantry, determination and skill. But following this, things started to go wrong for Rutherford. Now whether he found the transition from regimented military life to civilian street too difficult to adjust to after so long isn't known. Although I can testify, as I'm sure any other ex-service personnel who may be listening can as well, it does take you a while to do, doesn't it? But his life gradually began to change. His father, Richard Perry Rutherford, had for many years run a well-established family shipbuilding firm in Birkenhead, A. Rutherford & Co., repairing and building ships for both the Royal Navy and the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. And upon his death in 1961, His son Neil, who had worked with his father following leaving the Navy, now inherited the business. However, whether he was not as good a businessman as he was a sailor, or whether it was just a downturn in local trade, orders drifting away, who knows. But A. Rutherford & Co.'s trade began to rapidly decline, until in the late 1960s, the business was liquidated. Beside the business failing, as was Rutherford's marriage, and by May 1972, he and Joan had divorced. He spent time following this moving from flat to flat around the North Wales area, before in 1974 settling in Penmine Mower, where he at first attempted various projects, including research into the container business and restoration of small boats. However, none of these ventures came to anything, and the ever-solitary Rutherford cut a quite sad, lonely figure in the several pubs in the Penmine Mower area where he would head to be part of an atmosphere, yet was someone always on the fringes by himself, never to entertain company. 
And then his fortunes took a bit of a turn up when in April 1975 he answered the call for a handyman gardener at the Red Gables Hotel. It isn't clear how long he had known the Simcox family for beforehand, as various sources I used for research gave a varying figure of between 5 to 13 years, but his appointment meant a chance for Rutherford to settle and to re-establish himself once again, and at first, things were fine. His background had made him more than a capable maintenance man, and the love of horticulture that he had inherited from his father well, you can't get a better gardener than someone like that, can you? Before long, as I've said, Rutherford had moved into a flat below the hotel, before some months later, moving upstairs into a room on the second floor. He got on generally well with the rest of the staff, although it was noted that Rutherford could become, shall we say, somewhat argumentative when he'd been drinking. He also, it was noted, had developed a bit of an obvious attraction to Linda Simcox, his employer. Linda's daughter, Muriel Bickerton, said later, He found a way into my mother's sympathy, for my sister had left home and she was lonely. He liked to give the impression that he was fond of my mother, but my mother never gave the impression that she was fond of him. In fact, it was only Linda Simcox that could bring a change in Rutherford's demeanour. A former worker at the Red Gables who knew Rutherford, Diane Ryan, said later, The only time his behaviour was different was when he thought someone was getting close to Mrs Simcox. He wouldn't speak or eat. He was very jealous of anyone associating with Mrs Simcox, male or female. Now, all sources that I used for research are abundantly clear that this was an unrequited desire and that Linda had no aspirations of making the slightly balding, middle-aged Rutherford a partner in any way, shape or form, being simply happy with the dynamic of employer-employee, which was all she wanted from him. Again, perhaps it was difficult for a man like Rutherford, who had once had command of his own naval vessel, to accept the role as employee, or perhaps it was even something as draconian as him hating taking orders from a woman. It was a different time back then after all. Or perhaps he'd even thought misguidedly that it was somehow his right to have more of a say in things. But he wasn't content with his appointment and began trying to interfere in the day-to-day running of the hotel alongside keeping the grounds and maintaining the property. By 1976, he and Linda had had several arguments over things he'd done off his own bat with her reminding him more than once that she was in charge It was her name as proprietor, and not his. Rutherford would go off and sulk for a time after these rows, often heavily drinking whiskey alone in his room, before emerging and acting as though nothing had happened. And the merry cycle went on like this. By early 1976 also, Linda had a youngest daughter from her second marriage, 24-year-old Lorna McIntyre and a 34-year-old husband Alistair, living at the Red Gables with them, helping the newlywed couple out with a start in their married life. And on September the 10th of that year, Linda had left to go on a pre-arranged week's holiday to Blackpool with Lorna. Not wanting the Red Gables populated while she was away, as they would be understaffed, she told Rutherford, who would be acting as overseeing the place, specifically not to take in any guests for full board. He could offer them bed and breakfast service only if people were stuck for anywhere else to stay, 
but no more than three rooms were to be allocated. She was abundantly clear about this. So when Linda rang Rutherford back at the Red Gables some days later to inquire as to how everything was, she was very upset to find out that he deliberately ignored her express wishes and the hotel had at that time eight people in for full board. When they returned from Blackpool, Linda and Lorna returned to find the hotel in such chaos that they may as well have renamed it Faulty Towers, and with Rutherford showing no signs of apology. Indeed, he expected Linda to have been grateful to him for the £85 board fees that he'd earned for her. Linda and Rutherford had an almighty row about this, and according to Diane Ryan, he just threw the money at her and stormed out. When he returned to the Red Gables the following day, Linda was not in a forgiving mood. There'd been too many instances like this of Rutherford's interference, and thinking that she just didn't need the hassle, told Rutherford that that was it, she was terminating his employment. Muriel said later, My mother told him to pack his bags and be out first thing in the morning. He went halfway up the stairs, turned around to face my mother and said, I may just put a bullet through you. It didn't occur to me or my mother to think about the gun when he made the remark on the stairs. For oh yes, Neil Rutherford, former naval commander, did indeed have a gun, a German 7.65 Verev pistol, and it wasn't even the first time that he'd threatened this either. A week or so before Linda had gone away, during yet another row, Rutherford had told her before he'd stormed out, according to a friend of Linda's who had witnessed it, Moira Bradley, I'll be back, I'll shoot the bloody lot of you. Dismissing this as just an idle threat, something someone who was very angry would say, Linda had ignored this, by then familiar with Rutherford's stroppiness. It was also another example of his jealousy towards anyone who he believed would get her attention. For this row had flared up when Linda had mentioned that they would be having a visitor coming to stay, an old friend of the Simcox family, businessman John Green, who they hadn't seen for some 10 years and who would be visiting from Texas and staying for a week or so. In his mind threatened by the presence of Green, Rutherford had a face like a smacked arse when he was told this, which led to the row. And now, two weeks later, he'd proper pissed on his chips with Linda and was facing not only unemployment, but homelessness also. The day after Linda had dismissed him then, the 19th of September, when Rutherford had packed his bags, he told the Simcox family before leaving, I know when I'm not wanted. Although Muriel and her brother Richard insisted that Rutherford should leave his keys behind, he neglected to and left the premises. Now where he went following this is unestablished, although one newspaper report does suggest that he travelled down to Christchurch in Hampshire. Wherever he was, he was only there for a few days however, for on Friday the 24th of September, he was certainly back up in Penmine Mower. That afternoon, John Morris Jones was in the town's Mountain View Hotel bar, when he noticed Rutherford, whom he knew as he'd formerly painted boats for him when Rutherford's family business was operating, he recalled later, He was standing at the bar drinking when I walked in, and on the bar he had a pair of binoculars. I asked him if I could try them, and he said yes. As they got talking, 
the normally quiet Rutherford began talking about his war experiences, saying, He told how he had seen people hanging on wire and bodies in submarines. He said also during the conversation that Mrs Simcox had gone on holiday and he had taken £85, which he didn't think was bad for a man on his own, but that they'd had, I quote, an argy-bargy. John claimed that Rutherford had then spoke of women in general and had said, we can fucking do without them. He also noticed that Rutherford had something, I quote, heavy in his pocket, though he couldn't see what it was. The landlord of the Mountain View Hotel, Mr E.W. Kemish, meanwhile, said that Rutherford had seemed his usual self that day, claiming, he used to come in about once a week for a drink, and on Friday he had a glass of Guinness and a couple of gins. He was on his own and was pacing up and down like he usually did. Rutherford had left at afternoon closing time, but had most likely continued heavy drinking following this, and most likely his usual tipple, whiskey. Skip forward now to just before 6pm that evening. A man named Robert Gwynford Jones was driving eastbound on the A55 when he passed what is now the town's Derbyshire Road, which connects Bangor Road to the A55 and passes the rear of the Red Gables. He noticed smoke coming from the building, so as soon as he could, he pulled over and called the emergency services. But by that time, they'd already been notified, because it was much more serious than a simple fire. Brian Jones, former landlord of the Bronnerurri Hotel, just further up Bangor Road, told the Daily Post newspaper at the time, Just before the fire, a woman dashed into the hotel and asked me for a whiskey. She was in a state of shock and said she'd seen an accident. She said a man had been shot and was lying by the hotel with blood pouring from his chest. Moments before, a 41-year-old nursing assistant at Bryn and Nowith Hospital in Llanfairfechen, Will Williams, had arrived at his nearby St John's Park home and noticed a woman waving her arms in the road, near a very clearly injured man who lay slumped against the wall outside the back gate of the hotel. Stopping to help, Mr Williams described later, I ran over and took the man's pulse. It was very weak. He had blood all over his stomach and nose. I sent for blankets to keep him warm, and someone phoned for the police and an ambulance. He didn't say anything to me, and then his pulse stopped. The woman who found him said he had told her he'd been shot. She was in a right state. Then Will smelled smoke and found that the hotel was on fire, with flames showing through the roof. Telling someone to phone the emergency services, he and other neighbours ran through the gardens towards the blaze. He continued, The doors were closed, so we hammered on them and shouted, Anybody there? There was no answer and I didn't want to open the doors because I've seen what draft does to a fire. Now fire crews were at the scene within moments and began tackling the blaze, whilst the doctor, Ewin Jones, had also by this time arrived and began tending to the injured man, but he was sadly pronounced dead at the scene. By 7.15pm, the blaze had quickly been extinguished, helped by the now pouring rain but the fire had caused serious damage to the staircase, landing and roof of the building, 
with some of its front rooms upstairs also being damaged. Home office pathologist Dr Donald Waite had by this time also been contacted, had arrived, and had noticed indeed that the woman who had discovered the man outside hadn't been mistaken, he had indeed been shot twice, finding two bullet wounds complete with exit marks to the man's chest and abdomen. Though it wasn't established until the following day, the man outside was 33-year-old Alistair McIntyre, who was believed to have escaped from the hotel and crawled through the gardens to the road, due to the abrasions to his face and arms, to call for help, tearing off his pullover as he made his way through the garden. And as Dr. Waite was examining him, Fire Officer Victor Miller came out and told him that they'd just found another body inside, in a first floor toilet. Heading inside, Dr. Waite and the fire crew headed up to the first floor to find the body of a young woman that had been brought out and laid in the hallway. A check revealed no signs of life, and Dr. Waite was quickly able to establish that she too had been shot, a single bullet that had been fired to her left neck below the ear, and that had exited through the right side, causing a massive catastrophic wound. This was later established to be Alistair's wife, 24-year-old Lorna, who tragically was found to have been 22 weeks pregnant at the time. Horror enough already then, I'm sure you'll agree. But that wasn't all, because firefighters were to then find another three bodies in the immolated charnel house. Another body was found downstairs in the hotel kitchen the body of the long-standing friend of the hotel owner Linda Simcox, Mr John Gore Green. He lay on the blood-soaked floor between the kitchen and the pantry, having lost some four or five pints of blood due to the bullet wounds he'd received in the top of his head and in the back. It was later established that he was shot in the back first, which would have paralysed him, and he then began to crawl into the kitchen pantry before he was executed with a shot to the head. Then, leading on from a partial denture that was found in the kitchen, through a door that led out from the kitchen into the hotel lounge, were another two bodies. A middle-aged woman lay on her back in the heavily blood-spattered room, her legs and arms outstretched, and lying partially across her on his right side was the body of a middle-aged, slightly balding man, whose left hand clutched a pistol. As I'm sure you can by now imagine, these were the bodies of the hotel owner, 59-year-old Linda Simcox, and the gardener she'd fired just some days before, 54-year-old Neil Rutherford. It's reported that both fire crews and police were greatly distressed at finding the scene I've just described, and it's not really surprising that, is it? Because... Can you imagine the pure horror of finding that lot a bloodbath like that? It must have been terrible. The full events of what had happened, who was shot, in which order, could only ever be estimated at, but police were quick to establish a theoretical sequence of events. As the bodies were taken to CNA Hospital in Bangor for post-mortem examination by Dr. Waite, the detective leading the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Gwyn Owen, told the local press we are not seeking anyone at this stage we have not established the identities of the victims 
but we believe the elderly woman and an elderly man lived at the hotel. By the time the inquest was heard in Llandidno on the 29th of October 1976, after it had been opened and adjourned as is procedure on the 25th of September to allow for further inquiries to be made, it took an all-male coroner's jury just 10 minutes to reach a verdict of four counts of unlawful killing and a count of suicide at the hands of Neil Rutherford. The coroner, J. Pritchard Jones, reminded the jury that the only evidence before them was the technical evidence, but this was pretty persuasive. Ballistics expert Thomas Warlow told the inquest that all shots fired had been from the same gun, a 7.65 Verev German pistol, that was found in the hand of Neil Rutherford. That he had a gun was supported by the evidence of a woman named Mona Arkell, the wife of a friend of Rutherford's who had told police that some three years before, Rutherford had given the couple a safe, out of which he removed some paperwork and a German pistol. Mrs. Arkell said, He had ammunition with him. He put the ammunition into the pistol and then put the pistol in his case. He said, That seems to be in working order. And then said, If you were in a hurry, it would cause delay to have the safety catch on. Linda's daughter Muriel also confirmed that the Simcox family was aware that Rutherford had had a gun, and also confirmed that just days before the massacre, Neil Rutherford had made two death threat warnings, the last after being sacked, and which Linda disregarded, thinking, as we've said before, that this was just the rumblings of someone angry and just idle threat. Not a chance. Five days later, he'd returned and committed pure carnage. Mr. Pritchard Jones said, Mrs. Simcox did not take the threat seriously, and I am sure nobody at that time could have known what would happen. I mean, how could you? How can you think someone will do that? Now, as we've said, it's impossible to clearly determine the order of events that fateful evening, but following testimony from many of the witnesses we've described here, and their actions and findings that evening, it was determined to be most logically along the lines of as follows. Rutherford had returned to Penmine Mower and had been out drinking that afternoon, which he most likely continued to do following afternoon closing time. He was found to have had a blood alcohol content of 231 milligrams at his subsequent post-mortem. And just before 6pm, he had used the set of keys he'd neglected to return to let himself into the building making his way down to the cellar to collect fuel. Traces of it were found on Rutherford's shoes and clothing. He then made his way up to the first floor, where he'd also disconnected the central heating system pipes, allowing diesel oil to spread everywhere, and had then ignited the fire by firing around from the Verev pistol into the pool of fuel. This fire then subsequently spread to the hallway, which then took hold of the roof and the main staircase. It was thought that following this, Rutherford had first shot Lorna, who had attempted to hide in the sanctuary of the upstairs bathroom, before heading downstairs and shooting Alistair and John Green as each attempted to flee, although in which order couldn't be established. Following this, he had likely then shot and killed Linda Simcox, before turning the gun on himself as he stood over her, firing through the roof of his mouth. Feeling he'd lost everything in his life, seething with rage, jealousy, you name it, 
Rutherford had not only destroyed the place that he had now come to hate, but everyone in it as well. Had John Green not been the only guest staying there that evening, who knows how much more bloodshed would have occurred. It doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? Following the murders, the Red Gables was restored and was placed up for sale in May 1977 by Swettenham's estate agents at an asking price of £17,500, where in August of that year, it was bought by Keith and Mary Manuel and once again began functioning as a hotel. But the introduction of the A55 bypass in the 1980s hit businesses around the area hard, the local economy took a gradual downturn, and after limping by for years, by 2004, the hotel had finally closed as an establishment. The building was then left in a state of decay for more than a decade, having been vandalised and its interior torn to shreds by thieves over the time, and the state of which happens to be documented in a fascinating series of photographs that if you go and have a look, are contained in a link in the episode show notes. By 2015, the hotel and its grounds were up for sale for some £375,000, but it sold for less than half that, being bought by Greater Manchester-based developer Global Investment Partnerships for just £150,000, the place's negative history greatly affecting its marketability. The following year, it was completely razed to the ground, plans to build a block of apartments on the site having been approved some time before, and today, the Owl Unis apartment complex now occupies the site where the hotel once stood. But the tragedy and horror that happened there can never be truly forgotten, try as long-time residents might. The road that connects Bangor Road to the promenade and the A55, which it passes over, was for many years up until recently known as the Red Gables Viaduct, taking its name from the now-demolished Red Gables Hotel, and about four years ago, plans were made to officially rename it. The plan was opposed by local councillor Ken Stevens, who argued that the road had been named after, I quote, an iconic building, and had been known as Red Gables Viaduct for more than 30 years, even being named as such on tourism brochures. Meanwhile, Dennis Roberts from the Penmainmower Historical Society supported the town council's request to change the name. He argued that the house had been known for nearly a hundred years as Gwil Aneth before it became the Red Gables Hotel in the 1970s. He said, The naming of the road Red Gables has little historic significance and has the unfortunate association with the murder and suicide of five people at the house of the same name. Penmainmower Town Council agreed, and today the road is officially named Forth Derbyshire, being renamed so in January 2018 after some prominent 19th century Penmainmower landowners. A spokesperson for the council, definitely not Ken Stevens, said at the time, Thank goodness common sense prevailed and the committee heeded advice from the local historical society and us. We had spent a long time researching names and identified a number which would celebrate the town's heritage. We were appalled at the idea of celebrating a mass murder, and that would have been very embarrassing for the town. I can kind of see the point there. But if evil and tragedy hit somewhere, especially mass murder, can it ever really shake off the reminder in full, whatever you do, 
or is the name of the place forever tainted with it to a degree? I mean, what is the first thing you think of even so many years later when you hear words such as Hungerford, Dunblane, Lockerbie, or even Cromwell Street? The memories of evil and tragedy tend to stick around, I think. What do you guys think? I'm amazed that each of the accounts I've described here are not as familiar as they should be, because the events described in each are true unforgettable horror, aren't they? And I was also struck by the slight similarities between each tale. Two shooters, the seaside, the military connection, and with each, a person with no reported history of prior mental illness, but who each felt loss and that they were at the end of their rope. Napoleon Green thinking he was about to go to jail and be discharged from the Air Force before committing acts that ensured he would have hung, and Neil Rutherford, whose life over the years had already come down in stature drastically from what it had once been, and who, through his own doing, his own attitude and actions, now found himself unemployed and homeless. And both just psychologically snapped, for there can be no other way to describe the mindset behind the events of each, can there? It's only pure fortune that more people were not killed as a result of Green's mass shooting, for the death toll that morning could have been massively higher than it was. And in the case of Rutherford, just what if the hotel had been full of paying customers that evening? But that small fortune to be thankful for, because each created carnage enough with their actions, didn't they? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode which has featured the terrible rampages of Napoleon Green and Neil Rutherford, which as ever there is a shiny episode thread that you can do so in up now on the show's Facebook discussion group, or if you want to get in touch with me through any of the show's social media links to talk about it, then that's fine as well, it's always good to hear from you guys wherever. Head over to the show's Instagram page where you'll find several images concerning the cases featured here, although Indiana Jones himself couldn't have found a bloody picture of Neil Rutherford if he tried, and check out the episode show notes for further reading about each case in the sources section. With that, it's wrapping up time once again now here on The Enthusiast. I thank you all so very kindly for joining me here today. It means the world as it ever does that you do. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now. <laughs>